0: You're listening to the Electric Sheep podcast. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is the monthly podcast to complement the UK's finest online cult film magazine, which you can find at www.electricsheepmagazine.com. Following my conversation in last month's podcast with Oscar-winning director Joseph Strick about the juxtaposition of culture and counterculture in his career, this month's podcast is an interview with Ian Rakoff, a writer, editor, production supervisor and raconteur who worked on The Prisoner 42 years ago. Indeed, if you're listening to this in the last week of 2009, it's exactly 42 years since the episode he wrote was broadcast, and he was also an acute observer of British film culture in the 1970s and beyond. I'm talking to Ian about the bolderisation of his script for Living in Harmony, his experiences working with Lindsay Anderson on such films as If and *O oh Lucky Man, working with other great British directors, such as Nicholas Roeg, John Borman and Stephen Frears, and how his lifetime interest in comic books influenced his career, which led to the Victorian Albert Museum comic book collection, which includes 17,000 titles from his own library. I interviewed Ian in his flat while he was signing prisoner trading cards, making dinner and observing babysitting duties, so you'll have to forgive the background noise.
1: Well, one of the things, I suppose, for me the most salient aspect of The Prisoner might mm. be that when I said to myself, halfway through, and that was even before maybe I was into the writing, when I was an assistant editor, mm. and I said, look, there's no reason I can't make my career working on substantial material.
2: Mm.
1: I've, I've, I've broken into the industry. I've had a good education, you know. I studied at the BFI, mm. I've met some interesting people, but basically, I've worked on nonsense. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, a, a comedy with Harry Cor- H. Corbett, a Michael Winner film, and uh, I mean, so I'd become a professional. Mm. Uh, I was on the loop, as they say, and then. Mm always documentaries in between and I was, um, I was hot. Yes. And, you know, and, and work just fell my way all the time. Mm. But then once I was onto The Prisoner, it was the sort of stuff I was interested in. Mm. And I just got a grant at the same time for um, a thing that I wrote with Lindsay Anderson's Help and Connivance, mm. uh, which was a Kafkaesque type thing. And um, I just thought, I can do it. Mm. I mean, I'm not going to work on the sort of films I've worked for, Mm. worked on, at all. And indeed, my career did turn out like that. Because um, the grant, I started making this film, and unfortunately, Lindsay Anderson pushed me into directing it.
0: Yes, yeah, I read about that in the oh, book. I,
1: well, you know. Oh, yes, right. Yeah. And of course, I didn't want to do it. It was an absolute fiasco. Mm. And it was a waste of everything. I mean, I should have
2: yeah.
1: got somebody else to do it. I said. I said, Lindsay, I thought you were going to direct it. You <laughs> see, I didn't know anything about the social system here, mm. about the class thing, about the hierarchical thing. Mm. So consequently, I thought Lindsay Anderson was significant and wonderful and um, as, as, and from the beginning he was just somebody I, I could relate to. Mm. Mm. And people were obviously appalled by the way I I just thought I was equal to him. I remember something similar happened but years later I wrote a screenplay, I was a writer for Jan Thruel. He Won quite a few Oscars as Best Foreign Picture. He's one of the greatest living Swedish film directors. Mm. And he was very proud of the fact that Bergman had a copy of his first film in his library. And um, I had Jan for dinner here. And I I wrote this film for him. or I mean, rewrote it. They employed me for a week at a phenomenal amount of money by Mm. some... Fiasco, And at the end of the week, um, they came back to me, because I'd been trying to set this film up for years, and they couldn't mm. pull it off. And they said, look, would you rewrite the whole film? Mm. Because I was complaining, yes, I'll make it better, but this is rubbish. <laughs> and so I got commissioned to do the entire script. Mm. And, um, you know, it, it, uh, as soon as they had my script, within a fortnight they had German money, they had Italian, they had the thing set up. Mm. And Jan and I remained friends and had I spoken Swedish, mm. I would have had a, a different kind of g- career. What year was this? The 80s. Oh, okay. This was the 80s, 84 and then 87 mm. or something. And um, I remember one evening I had a chap staying here, I was a, a British film technician, a he uh, was a sound recorder, I mm. And Jan came for dinner, and I remember it was Cora and Fernald. It was a bunch of people. And he couldn't believe the way I talked to Jan. You know, there was, there, obviously there was mm. no hierarchy, mm. what, well, particularly with the Swede, actually, mm. anyway. But, but after but you'd been working
0: in the film industry for two decades, you think by then you'd have had, you know, enough respect that you could talk to well, anyone how you wanted. Well, I
1: always did anyway. Yeah, but, well, uh, know, but, but um, <laughs> you know, with this chap, he knew about young Truel, he knew, you know, at that time, because he was winning Oscars then in the mm. 80s. And I got my name in the New Yorker for scripting that one.
0: Huh. In your career, you know, you obviously work on various things as a, as a freelance editor, assistant director, whatever, and you don't know what it is that you're doing that will turn out to be the thing no, you become no, no. famous no, no, for no. My career until was not years like after
1: John Smith, the editor that I worked, mm. he used to say, point out, he said, all these people working on The Prisoner, Ian, are jobbers, like mm. me. Mm. And John Smith was a jobber. But he acknowledged that I was different. Mm. I was not a jobber. Mm. I was not there just looking for a way to make a living. Yeah, I was there and thrilled by it all because I identified with it. Mm in the same way that this chap, Mark, did, who I met, who was very stylish, and you, mm. you read about him in yeah. uh, in the book.
0: What, what I was getting at was, when you worked on The Prisoner, you wouldn't have known that it was the thing that you had become famous for for the next 40 years.
1: Oh, no, true. I didn't know it was going to become a cult thing. All I'm talking about was having a sense that it was a work of significance. Yes. Although... I knew it wasn't a work of art.
2: Mm.
1: I'm talking about moral conviction. You know, the rest is secondary. Mm. And that's what McGowan represented, and that's why the series is so magnificent. Mm. It's a combination of moral significance with a certain level of highly accessible ineptitude. <laughs> mm. but,
0: just, but just thinking of the nature of, of what someone becomes famous for, in the book, you talk about meeting, I think, Lindsay Anderson after you finished working on if after you'd assembled the, the cut for the screening from various, you know, different versions. And I think it was you know he says, This is what you'll be remembered for. And yet it's the prisoner that everyone accosts you for 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 writing one script that, you know, maybe you can talk about how much it was butchered, but certainly one script that got you one, you know, credit on screen and it's the one thing that people at random events, ask you for your autograph for, so it's very Well, expensive. I did get asked
1: to go to a film festival in Jersey mm. to do a question and answer on F.
0: Okay.
1: They got, they were told about me, I said, how'd you find me? And they said, the, oh, the Lindsay Anderson Society. Because ah. I, also I'd been on television, some documentary, it was like a 40, 50 minute documentary on F,
2: mm.
1: and it was the producer, and... And of course, I'm the last one around, practically. I was mm-hmm. the youngest out of all of them. The same with a prisoner.
2: Yeah.
1: And now I'm ancient, but I'm still oh, the heartless. youngest. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Lindsay Anderson, for example, is a director who's very underrated. I mean, you know, anyone who is a film scholar recognizes that he's one of the giants of the film industry, even though he only made a small number of films, and yet...
1: Well, um, I am writing a book, okay. Movies and Other Lies. Okay. And uh, Nick Rogers read quite a lot of it. Mm. And uh, that's really about my relationship with Lindsay it's more of a personal and mm. a personal journey mm. from my political background to my cinematic foreground.
0: One of the aspects of your book on the prisoner is it does also read as an autobiography. I know I mean, some people so, don't
1: like that but no, no, um, I, I, I think um,
0: maybe you know now that it's out of print you could almost republish it as the first volume of your autobiography, because it sounds in a way like this would be the next volume.
1: Well, except you know, I'm, I'm going over the same territory. OK, but from a different angle. Too. I think so, very much mm. so, yeah.
0: I interviewed Malcolm McDowell and Mike Kaplan. Yeah, I interviewed them when they were screening it at the BFI. Yes. And so obviously Malcolm's trying to get Lindsay's name back out there. Oh, and, yes, you know.
1: yes, oh, yes. Well, it's the biggest thing he's ever done, you yeah. see. I mean, that's the, it's the strongest point of his history. Mm. And uh, we were going to do stuff together, never happened. Well, there's stuff about him in my in my book yeah. also. Yes, and Donald Camel and mm. all that. Yeah. No, Malcolm and I were very pally, really. Mm. And uh, and Kaplan, I still see Kaplan. Mm. And he came over. They did a fir- They filmed it. Yeah. so I went to screenings. So. Kaplan, I always see a few times when he mm. comes over. He used to live around the corner. Mm. Um, for a long time, and then Malcolm lived in Notting Hill Gate. Okay. And so the three of us, and um, there was this project I had, which, um, I mean, I sold it uh, for development, but not much. Mm. Nick Rogue was going to direct it, and mm. Malcolm was going to star in it, and um, it didn't happen. Mm. I've got a lot of those. <laughs> I've got one project I've earn more money out of than anything else. It's mm. never got made.
0: Mm. I suppose that must be one of the frustrating things of being a scriptwriter, that quite often your work gets optioned or commissioned, but then never sees the screen. So
1: well, that's why I'm trying to get published now. Mm. Just, you know, it's a, um, no matter how bad publishing is, mm. um, it's well, we'll see. I mean, it's yeah. just, um,
0: Following the Prisoner With If, seems a very opposite first ah,
1: sequel. A more opposite one in between, though, okay. was Stephen friar's first
0: film. Right. Burning. The Burning.
1: Because mm. that came afterwards, you see. And I didn't want to do it, really. Lindsay brought me in, you see, and I said, uh, well, maybe I'll do it part-time or something, but, you know, I've just got my screen credits, I'm going to be a writer now. Mm. And Lindsay basically said, fuck that. <laughs> Who do you think? You know, it's not... It's, What he was saying to me also, listen, forget it. It's not that easy, and you're not the type. You're not a television Mm. clone. Mm. And he was quite right. I mean, thank God I didn't. um, So I cut Stephen's film. It went Mm. very well. Mm. And I would have cut um, Stephen's next feature, but I didn't like the script, Mm. and it was very good. Mm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. No, but then at the end of it, as you probably read in the book, Lindsay said, if you go cut commercials for six then you'll cut if
0: yeah but you didn't want to work in
1: commercials. absolutely not you're not I've a fan never... of
0: the theory then that you you do want for the system and you do want for yourself
1: i've got a lot of good friends in commercials yeah which is fine i just felt and even lindsay wanted no. well he wanted me to do commercials because he thought i was a bit too high hat or something hmm. he felt it was wrong that i had this why should i be any other fact is I I, um, I wasn't going to do commercials. I wasn't criticising or condemning it, and I had a lot of nice friends mm. in the world of commercials, but it, it wasn't right for me for where I had been mm. and for where I dreamed of going, which I might never have achieved <laughs> and might never achieve, but um, I still didn't do commercials. Mm.
0: But the reason I brought up If, though, is... The reason that it reminds me of the prisoner is not just the central theme of rebellion and independence, but also the gentle surrealism of it, which presumably isn't in the burning.
1: No, the burning is a straightforward story. Yeah. Uh, in, in effect, you know, it's about rebellion, mm. completely and utterly.
0: But yes. it certainly has that British sense oh, yes, of and it's, whimsy. Well,
1: and yes, yes, and it's also got uh, my second talk at the v it's <laughs> going to be from social realism to magical realism. Ah, I
0: like it. Okay, Lindsay in particular, Free Cinema to to If. You know, you can't get more, or I suppose this Sporting Life to If. You can't get more diametrically opposite.
1: Well, Sporting Life was just a tour de force of realism. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what I'm, yeah, I'm, that's yeah, what I'm yeah.
0: saying. Yeah. You know, they may have the same theme of rebellion and independence, but the way that the story is depicted, it goes from realism to magical realism. And it's interesting that you can have two different genres that, in one respect, are polar opposites but in the other are very much complementary.
1: What intrigues me about magic realism Mm. is not the intrusion of magic, it's the segue, I hate that word, Mm. of of the naturalness. You know, and it's like, you know, with If. The question people used to most ask me about If
2: Mm.
1: was the, the cadet corps, where the chaplain gets shot. And the next sequence, he's pulled out of a drawer in the headmaster's office, Mm. and uh, told to um, shake hands with the boys. Mm. Uh, But the thing is, it was just it it was very very organically integrated, Mm. and the um, subdivision, the titles, were excellent because then it gave it in a way, a Brechtian reality, Mm. which gave you the freedom to say anything.
2: Mm.
1: And nothing was pushed. Very low shooting ratio on it. And um, everything was tremendously conceived in Lindsay's mind. Mm.
0: But at the same time, the less you shoot, obviously, the harder it is to edit, because that's one of the, the themes of your book. The way, that, for example, the two episodes of The Prisoner you worked on as an assistant editor, the footage that was sent to the editing room was disastrous and you had to make something out of what was available by adding in found footage. And then the same again with If. There's the section where you're talking about how Lindsay Anderson wanted a particular expression on Malcolm McDowell's face that you remembered seeing in the rushes, but there was very little footage of. And even though they reshot that scene, they had to go back to the few frames that you found yeah, and yeah, go back and forth yeah, over them in order to construct a scene that hadn't existed in reality, to some respect.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> Lindsay said, to said, you know, Malcolm goes around America, Ian, and he tells everybody about you, you doing that end shot. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um,
1: if I had gotten a, a big credit as, I, mm. as Lindsay offered me on F, yeah. I wonder how that would have affected my career.
0: I mean, certainly, you know, the role that you had in it, as described in your book, it certainly sounds like I don't know, first assistant director.
2: Oh no, 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 more than
1: no, 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 considerably more than that. Right. Oh no, 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 not an assistant of any type.
2: Mm.
1: No, it would have been a producer. It it would have been, I mean, something supervisory. Mm. You know, production supervisor or something like that. Mm. I mean, because. I did what only Lindsay Anderson could do. You know, it was just the two of us. Yes. That's it. No, so it wasn't sort of, you know... It wasn't even editing, you see. It was a lot more than that, I mean. Mm -hmm. Well, um... Let me just show you something. Do you want to Shall I read it out? Yeah, go for it.
0: Postcards from Lindsay.
1: Postcard from Lindsay, Christmas 68. Is this a Christmas present or an end of picture present, do pictures ever end? In any case, thank you for all the devoted service you rendered to our picture. Under heavy fire, all too often, but always deeply appreciated. I don't like to think what would have happened to if, without you, Lindsay. Awesome. That's the only credit I've got.
0: Yeah. And it's so ironic as well, that it was almost a surprise to you that you got a credit on The Prisoner after they, you know, screwed up. Oh, yes, that's right. And then they wanted to give you a credit on it, but because the titles had already been made and you knew what a struggle it was to get those made, you turned it down. I had to.
1: (laughs) We wouldn't have made can. Yeah. I mean, I was so committed to that. I mean, seriously. I just... Mm. And at times, Lindsay might have wavered. I've got a nice postcard from him written the afternoon of the awards Hmm. standing by for compromise (laughs) this is going to go in the book you see i've Hmm. got all these postcards
2: excellent
0: on the theme of compromise one of the issues you kind of skirt over surprisingly in your book is to go into the difference between the original script you wrote for living in harmony and what came out on screen because presumably there are still a fair number of similarities because when you talk about the original writing of it it does sound a lot like the episode
1: that was produced. It is. Mm. I mean, who else has got a comic book background in that world? Yeah. You know, Gene Autry, Living in Harmony, I mean, it's just, it was borrowed. And, um, no, they got rid of me, but they couldn't annihilate me.
0: But how much of what you actually wrote ended up on screen?
1: A lot. By the structure. Right. The concept. The dialogue. Most of the dialogue. I mean, Tony Sloman, he said he remembered reading the original and it was all there. Mm. And um, Dave Barry, the head of the Prisoner Society, he's the only person I allowed to read the original Mm. before the finished script. You know, and he said, yes, it was all there. I mean, no, it was just very, very wrong. I mean, he had nothing to do with the story. Mm. Tomlin, I mean, he was just a bully boy. And Magoon wanted me to write four more, for God's yeah, sake. Yeah. He didn't want anybody else. Mm. He probably wouldn't have even taken Tomlin mm. if he'd have got me, because I, I had political so I, I, I was cultured.
2: Yeah.
1: I wasn't sort of one of those pig-ignorant, money-grabbing job hoppers. Mm. That's all there was to it.
0: And it meant that then, with something like Living in Harmony, you could mix the pop culture and the genuine culture perhaps more effectively than other writers who worked on the series?
1: Well, yes, of course, because what was my motivation? I was a failed politico (laughs) who went into the arts because he was driven by the idea of the political significance of mass literature. Mm -hmm. That's what my life was about. And, of course, when this suddenly, The Prisoner, happened, there it was. Absolutely. There's nothing artsy-fartsy. And McGoon recognised that in me.
0: And certainly at that point in the 1960s, it seemed like that's when pop culture was segueing into social change. Because because the arts were anticipating it and then it actually happened on the streets.
1: Yes, I mean, I, I, I don't really think much of people who, who, who habitually denigrate the 60s because something of social consequence did happen and mm. thank god I came to this country
2: yeah.
1: at that time and lived in Chelsea. Mm.
0: At the risk of the risk of treating your book as a sort of social artifact it is interesting how people have this vision of the 1960s Where everything was really cool and you could bump into celebrities at any corner and actually you did (laughs) and so it really is almost like a wish fulfillment thing i mean for anyone who might read this thinking actually brilliant there's someone who did live the life that everyone wanted the 1960s yes
1: yes i turned down the pink floyd i turned down the beatles i don't think i wrote about the pink floyd in that no pink floyd were moving into movies this must be the early 70s yeah
0: because they soundtracked...
1: Uh, Zabrisky, w- w- right? Well, they made The Wall oh, okay. uh, with Alan Parker. and um, Anyway, Roger Waters was the bully boy chief, hmm. more or less the authority on, um, of the Pink Floyd. And um, this friend of mine, who was in commercials, hmm.
2: he
1: was uh, editing commercials, he said, Look, I, was, I talked to Roger Waters about you, and he really would like to appreciate meeting you. And so, could, we, could I take you around to his house one evening? I said, yeah, all right. So I went around, you know, probably taxis. There's was always taxis then, you know. I don't know what films. I was probably, you know, it was like I was working for John Boorman or Robert Altman. I don't know who I was squeezed in somewhere. I went around there and there was this unusually tall fellow with a blonde. And I had a terrible cold. And um, I think I was given brandy. I'm not sure I got anything to eat there, but it was hours and hours. And I was saying things to this chap like, look, you're being absurd, Hmm. absolutely absurd. You're the Pink Floyd.
2: Hmm.
1: You don't have to settle for second-rate jobbers that you're working with or what have you. You can pick up the phone to anybody in the whole bloody world. You are the Pink Floyd, for God's sake. <laughs> you know, just face up to it. Mm. And, um, so, uh, you know, stop whinging and minging. And um, anyway, I said, no, I listen, I'm just cold. Case. I've got to go and I've got to be at work and this and that. Very nice meeting you. Mm. Goodbye. Mm. And I went to the door. And um, we were sort of chatting on the doorstep. I think my pal is probably trying to wave to a taxi or something. Mm. And I'm on the lower step, and he's on the upper step, which means it's about two feet difference. Mm. And he says, look, um, why don't you come work with me, with us? You can take over all the film stuff. Mm. Just say what you want to earn, and and I'm sure this will be good. Mm. I said, Roger, for God's sake, look, there's just one obvious thing. I don't like you. (laughs) And what's more, Roger, you don't like me. He said, that's true. (laughs) That's true. But I don't see why we can't work together. I have to do this all the time (laughs) in music. And I almost, I almost changed my mind because I thought anybody that could come back to me with such a fine response (laughs) was a person worth knowing.
0: But then I suppose, it, you know, e- even in the period of time you're describing in the book, working within the film industry, you came across quite a few bullies, and I suppose the more experience you get, the easier it is to stand up to them.
1: But yes, he didn't, he didn't try to bully me, he'd been hmm. civil all night, but okay. there was just something I, I just, uh, I heard about. That's stuff I picked up probably afterwards, I, hmm. I hardly knew who he was. You know, I'd been to some of these concerts and I thought they were great. Mm. I'd lie on the floor and listen for hours to, you know, all their their material was great. Mm. But um, again, you know, should I have done it? But I, I, you know, it didn't offer a cultural development for me. You know, in the way that working on, say, um, a John Boorman film did. Mm. And of course, with me, when I worked with directors, I was very fortunate. I was very close. I mean, John became a friend of mine.
0: Looking at your biography on the Internet Movie Database, it's very thin, surprisingly so. And so I guess when your book comes out, people will actually be able to see, oh, you worked on this film and you worked on that film, and actually put it in a more permanent fashion on the Internet so people can actually realise what you were doing in the the gaps in your career that haven't been as widely reported.
1: Yes, and of course I did go, I worked on a pornographic feature film. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, sort of, and uh, that's the one story I've sold three, four times. Okay. About two years ago, Nick Rogue was going to do it. Mm. Twenty years ago, Lindsay Anderson was going to do it. Mm. And each time I, I got paid. Mm. And um, I'm surprised the one with Nick didn't come off now, though. Well, that was quite an experience, and um, I wrote a book about it, but I never quite got it. I nearly... I had tremendous interest recently from uh, Serpent's Tail, mm. and then Profile.
0: But, I mean, what I was saying, the, the collision, as it were, between pop culture and actual culture, you seem to be in the right place at the right time. I mean, not only working on The Prisoner, but getting to meet Nick Rogue just after he'd come off performance, getting to work on If, all of which are kind of cultural devices that very much furthered both the pop culture and you know the, the credible culture of the time.
1: It's quite remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. How one person <laughs> could sort of uh, tap into all these things.
2: Mm.
1: And I don't know what to say. You know, I mean, between Lindsay Anderson and Nick Rowe, the two extremes, mm. you'd say.
0: I mean, at the time, did, did you get the feeling that films like performance and if TV series like The Prisoner were capturing the zeitgeist, or is this something that only came after people watched them a few years down well, the road? Well, the
1: performance, certainly, when I saw I, uh, that, I, I couldn't get over it because I lived in Chelsea, mm. and Donald Campbell, you know, I mean, the style of it was, was incomparable. You know, I mean, it just... Um, you knew you were touching something significant, mm. that's all. The fact that I was there at these overlapping things mm. was indicative that I was somehow tuned into those times, mm. and that's why people wanted me around. Okay. That's why I never looked for a job. <laughs> because, and I couldn't get a job mm. if I was like aiming for the traditional kind of employment. Yeah. If you're doing something you could say, related to the zeitgeist. Our biggest problem was we never looked for work. okay. Because there weren't that many people amongst technicians. Mm. You know, and if you sort of some of these people, you want to get a few hip characters around,
2: Mm.
1: you know, if you're at the top Mm. of the tree. I was very committed Mm. to working for what I thought was the most significant, relevant... Mm. film on the go
2: yeah
1: i mean that was it you know it was like john blumen i'll go meet his editor i'll just meet with him socially mm. see what happens and then just lo and behold i i would put myself about in the right place you know i wouldn't actually like apply for a job mm. but i but i'd put myself about and you know and i'd mix with carol rice sort of thing and then I met his editor, and of course, a lot of these people, because I was connected with Stephen Frears, Mm. so he was on a network. That was quite something, Mm. but it was all the same, all these sort of intelligentsia, really, I have to say. Mm. Carol Rice, Lindsay Anderson, they're all friends, and Mm. and at one stage, Lindsay was going to direct Sex Factory and Carol was going to produce it, (laughs) and um, uh, that kind of freaked Carol, he, he didn't dare say no to Lindsay. Mm. <laughs> I knew, also, I, I knew there was, as Lindsay said, there's a price to pay. Mm. I mean, you know, I couldn't just go and get work anywhere.
2: Mm.
1: And that's why suddenly things sort of tapered off. Offers just stopped. After Oh Lucky Man, Deliverance, uh, the Bob Altman film, I never had a day off work. Mm. And then when the pornography thing came up, Lindsay said, "You can't uh, turn that down. Mm. You want to be a writer? Go and write it." And of course, I went there to uh, have, find something to write about. Mm. So I went, and I had the experience. I fell in love with a star. <laughs> we ran away together. The film followed me to London, and it was like bringing the Wild West after me. It was like mm. right, because the pornographer had never met anybody like me, Mm. even although I'd stolen his property. (laughs) And so the saga went on and on. And uh, and then after that, I mean, I couldn't just go back to film editing the way I'd known it. Mm. It was a sensation at Cannes. Lindsay told me, everybody said how well edited it was. (laughs) (laughs) It was shown out of competition. And apparently, the police had to be called because it was such a riot. It's one of the most infamous porno films ever made. What's it called? Sensations. Okay. But I mean, it was properly made. It was, mm. 34. It was around about the time of Deep Throat. Mm. And uh, L- indeed, I spoke to Linda Lovelace a few times because she was a friend of the girl who was the star. Mm. Except the girl that was the star was a beauty, which nobody could ever say about Linda Lovelace. And she, and she was bright, and, um, and it was a proper relationship. I mean, mm. although there was all the sadism and, and drugs and everything in it, mm. it was... Um, and I'm actually surprised that somehow I don't hear from her anymore, because she kept in touch for years. Mm. And I looked her up on the net the other day, and I could see that old films are still available, and um, last heard of seen in New York or something like that and well, she was a penthouse cover girl yeah. and I think playboy too I'm not sure
0: well and, and it's kind of continuing the theme uh, films like deep throat are now seen as much as cultural artifacts as as they are porn films they've they've oh, kind yes, of you know
1: yes, yes. sociologically of a period the 70s it mm. was a a big deal
0: thinking of your tenure as an assistant editor
1: yes
0: had you appreciated editing as much before you went into an editing room as the way that something is actually constructed as much after the the finish of shooting as it is during shooting?
1: I think you'd have to be half-witted not to know mm. that the grammar of cinema exists almost entirely in the assemblage of frames. Mm. So, you know, I mean, you're not going to learn about the the narrative skills mm. or the mechanics of the narrative skill by being a cameraman. Okay. You know, being a producer or anything. It's this thing of what frame goes where. And Lindsay Anderson was probably more in the cutting room than any mm. other film director ever, ever, ever. Mm. John Ford used to go fishing <laughs> as soon as the film was finished because mm. Lindsay was a great fan of his and he mm. wrote a book about him. Mm. Yeah.
0: But then, I mean, it was... I think it was Eisenstein, you know, who came up with the idea that if you cut um, two disparate scenes together, then the audience will make a connection and the narrative will start to form in their mind. You know, reading what you s- said in the book about how awful um, some aspects of the General and its Funeral were when they arrived at the cutting room, it must, it must be a surprise to some fans of the show that so much of it happened in the editing room.
1: Well, if the fans listened to Patrick McGurn, they would realize that most of the episodes are absolute dross. <laughs> and that there are... He said there were seven that were of value. Mm. And that's all. I mean, they just were rubbish.
2: Mm.
1: That's all there is to it. I mean, I, I mean, the chap that I shared that credit with... I mean, God, he did... The girl who was deaf. I just thought it was so deathly. Mm.
0: But even in something you know as as worthy as if with the fact that you use those few frames of Malcolm McDowell to construct Ah, you know the point to a scene even with something like that the editing is crucial
1: yes I've obviously got a kind of a natural eye Mm. for that sort of thing and my friend Sue um, pointed out she says you are frame educated Mm.
0: but then maybe that's something that comes from reading comics because
1: Oh, no, 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 it does. It comes from certainly the discipline of looking at frames. Exactly. And um, and somehow, because I was a sickly boy, <laughs> I was incarcerated a lot of the time. Mm. And so that life, as it was moving out there, was not that accessible. Mm. But life as it was moving in the frame was accessible.
2: Mm.
1: And especially when... In the comics, there were times when uh, moral decisions were were illuminated.
0: As I'm using your book kind of as a template for the interview. Yes. You end the book with appendices about the prisoner, including how you might have used um, the plot of Airboy comics oh, for right. future episodes.
1: That's right.
0: I mean. Uh, if if they ever invited you back, obviously the series is no longer in production, but there are things like prisoner novels. Would you be interested in returning in some form to the mythology?
1: I would very much if they'd have asked me. Mm. I would have been delighted to be involved, but um, I don't really exist. Lindsay used to say that about me. Oh, you can say anything you want you've to be, and he's not. He's not part of this, you know. He <laughs> doesn't exist. And then when. And whenever people liked me or got on with me, he was outraged. Mm.
0: Well, maybe for better or for worse, that's something that your book also suggests, that you were at least a chronicler of the time, so have become now because you were there when all these things took place. So maybe even though you weren't as involved as you might have liked, you can tell the story of how it happened. I was
1: involved as much as I like. I couldn't have asked for more from Lindsay. Oh no, I I mean, you
0: know, projects in general. You know, oh, um, you could have had more creative control, but in a way, you gave that up for being w- someone who observed and was sort of
1: No, it wasn't a that. As much as I had to learn. Okay. I was very conscious of people just wanting to be there, mm. indifferent to the process of study.
0: Mm. And I suppose the best way of studying is by observing.
1: Well, no, I mean, the mechanics of it. I mean, mm. I had to learn. Yeah. And you know what? The most extraordinary learning period I had was... Um, I worked on this film, Oh, Lucky Man. Yes. And um, I walked out. Right. After okay. a year. I mean, I did everything. I mean, I have no idea what I um, did. And I went to credit as a writer, and Lindsay wouldn't give it to me.
0: Oh see, so we're back in the same situation Absolutely. again. Absolutely.
1: And so I just said I'm resigning.
2: Hmm.
1: And we fought terribly. I didn't we didn't talk to each other. Okay. For something like two years. I get a phone call, swearing, on the other end of not even hello, is that ill or anything, just instant stream of a abuse. It's all your fucking fault. Hello, Lindsay! <laughs> What's the matter? What's my fault? It's all because of you. You know what happened? When we finished Oh Lucky Man, I got an agreement from Warner Brothers that if I cut out 12 minutes or something, whatever it was, remove remove a reel, I could reconstitute it subsequently. Well, we're talking two years later now or something. Mm. And he said, because you left the film, nobody can find anything. And it's all your fault because, oh, if you'd have stayed on the film, this wouldn't have happened. You know, you would have been up to speed. Mm. Everything would have been... And I was very metic... I was a librarian.
2: Yeah.
1: I was very meticulous, which is why, you know, here I am at the V&A. What am I doing again? Cataloguing and working as a librarian. Mm. So it's just... I didn't want to be a director. I had that one go at Lindsay wanted me to be. I wanted to understand what was going on, yeah. more than to... You know, I didn't want to flash myself in a way, in that sense, or make money. Mm. I just wanted to be in the game. I loved being in the game. I mean, I adore... It's a shame that I felt morally ob- obligated to do the writing, mm. because I loved tarting about in the cutting rooms. Mm. Nobody else enjoyed it like I did. Mm. You know. So, But uh, what was the
2: question?
0: <laughs> Unfortunately, Ian's book, Inside the Prisoner Radical Television and Film in the 1960s, is currently out of print. But second hand copies can be bought from online retailers, and hopefully, his book on working with Lindsay Anderson should be published sometime soon. In the meantime, Ian will be giving a free talk about the rise of comic books in the 20th century and their impact on culture at the Victoria and Albert Museum's Sackler Centre on the 3rd of February 2010 at 1.15pm. More info at www.vam.ac.uk. Continuing the theme of the 42nd anniversary of the Prisoner, in the next episode of the Sci-Fi London podcast, Reality Check, which you can find at wwwsci fi audio. I'm talking to 1980s Doctor Who script editor Andrew Cartmel about his new Prisoner novel Miss Freedom, and to the American indie rock band Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, who took their name from Ian Rakoff's original title for his episode of The Prisoner, later used for a different instalment of the series, and their first album has each track inspired by a different episode of the cult TV series. There'll be a new episode of the Electric Sheep podcast online at www.electricsheepmagazine.com next month, and in all good bookshops now, such as in the Tate and the ICA, you can buy the last print issue of Electric Sheep, which includes a partial transcript of my interview with Andrew Cartmel about his love of the prisoner. Be seeing you.